Psalm 40, verses 1 through 5, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man that maketh the Lord his trust and respecteth not the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord my God, are thy wonderful works which thou hast done, and thy thoughts which are to usward. They cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Heavenly Father, in the precious name of Jesus, we praise and thank you, Father, for the opportunity to partake of your word. And we just thank and praise you, Lord, for everything that you've been speaking into our lives. We just thank you, Father, that you saw fit to keep us healthy and strong once again in the midst of all the excessive heat, Lord. And, Father, even with ourselves, we had an issue with a flat this week, and you enabled us to get a new set of tires through your provision, Lord. We just praise and thank you, Father, for that. Lord, keep your hands upon all those who are sick. Father, heal them from the top of their heads to the soles of their feet. We curse that cancer in its root that Anthony has, Father. We command it to flee his body, Father, hallelujah, in the name of Jesus. And even though you saw fit to take him through the course of using medical treatment, Father, it was you who opened the doors, Father, to get insurance in the first place because he had none. So we praise and thank you, Father, that you can heal supernaturally. And, Father, if you deem it that way, you can have him healed through medical science. So we just praise you right now that that chemo will work exactly how you have intended it to work to purge that sickness out of his body. We thank you, Father, for Deanne as well, that you would continue to touch and heal her body. And right now, Father, give us, hallelujah, endurance and boldness, Father, Give us spiritual wisdom and insight, Father, that we could take your word and take it out to the streets, Father. And even as some of us are waiting patiently on you, as we see in the title of this series, Father, there might be trials and tribulations that we're going through and various things that we're dealing with. We may not necessarily have seen the resolution, Father, of our situations right now, but we trust you, Father. We proclaim faith today in the precious name of Jesus, Lord, and we know we're going to see marvelous breakthroughs and that you're going to bring forth incredible testimonies. And we just praise you, we thank you, we give you the glory, the honor, and praise, Father, that your word would embed itself deeply in our hearts, Father, that it would root itself deep in our minds, in our hearts, and our spirits, that it would govern our thoughts and our perceptions and our actions, Father. Let us take this word outside of this place and not be the same as we entered in. And we praise you, Father, in advance, hallelujah, for the victories that are going to come forth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. All right, so we're talking about waiting patiently for God, and this is the third week, amen? And in our previous weeks, we looked at how do you handle adversity? Do you handle it in an impulsive, anxious, or hasty fashion, or do you prayerfully seek God's intervention? Then we also went further and said, how do you wait? Do you wait with a mindset of faith? Or are you sitting there fearful that the situation will get worse? Are you fearful of losing opportunities and relationships? Are you murmuring against God? Or are you standing strong in your faith, trusting in God and knowing that he will not only deal with the current process and the problem, but he will also use that as a legacy to build upon to extend your blessings in him for generations? And at the very least, not only your present situations may be impacted by that, but... 
the faith that you stand upon and exhibit right now can literally touch generations of people to follow. So we saw the importance of trusting in him. Then finally last week we talked about how we cannot let our emotions rule us. God does not call any of us to be robots walking around with no personalities and no feelings. We're going to have them. But even though you may have feelings, you should not let your feelings govern you. We are called to be governed by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. So I said that emotions are highly overrated. Amen? They get us in more trouble than good. Amen? So don't let your emotions rule you. Now, last week, Before I close, I talked about us going into this week talking about being blinded to God. Amen. And I mentioned in our text scripture that the phrase waited patiently literally means to bind yourself together, perhaps by twisting. Once again, waited patiently in our text scripture means to bind together, perhaps by twisting. In other words, twisting is one of the ways in which you may bind yourself to something else. Now, of course, since we're talking about waiting patiently for God, we're not talking about binding ourselves together with our flesh and our sinful ways. We're not talking about binding ourselves together to people that will entrap us and get us into more trouble. And we're not talking about binding ourselves to the devices of Satan so that he can sift us as wheat and use us according to his own bidding. We're talking about binding ourselves together to God himself. And that phrase also means to expect. If you bind yourself together with God, you can expect, amen, that some of God's blessings are going to come forth in your life, amen? So there's an expectation, there's an anticipation that if you bind yourself to God, there's going to be fruit out of your circumstances, even though you may not be feeling it right now. Now, like I said, we are to bind ourselves together with God. In other words, we should intertwine or entangle ourselves so tightly with God that we cannot be separated from him. This process enables us to not only feel the presence of God at all times, but it also provides us protection and strength from the throne room of God itself. And that's why you'll see a lot of times where people might be going through trials and tribulations and you wonder like, man, why does it seem that it's not phasing them? Why is it that one person can go through a calamity and they're devastated? They're destroyed emotionally, if not necessarily physically, and the other person seems to be walking around with their head held high and they have a peace about them. That's because the Spirit of God, when you wait on Him and you trust in Him, and most of all, you intertwine or entangle yourself with Him, as opposed to the enemy in the world system, God gives you a supernatural sense of strength and peace that nothing else can provide you. Amen? Now, as an example of intertwining yourself with something, you can think about either a strand of hair or a strand from a rope. If any of you took hair from your head right now and just yanked on it, you would detach it pretty easily. Amen? You just snatch that bad boy right up out of there, and you feel a little ouch moment (laughs) as you pull it out. But basically, it would be very easy to snatch it out. Now, if you intertwine a lot of the hair and make a braid, now it's very hard. Matter of fact, if you intertwine hair together, it could be the point where it's a braid, where if you were to yank it out, you would actually pull some skin out with it. Or if it's something like I had, Kyle and I had locks, if you intertwine that hair, a lot of times you've got to cut it off with a pair of scissors because it's so intertwined, it gets very strong and dense, and it's very hard to separate them because they're so tightly interwoven together. So 
my question for us today is, are we bound together with something? Amen? Are you loosely attached to something or are you tightly attached to something? And then going a step further, are you just attached lightly and superficially or do you have a deep-rooted connection? And going further from that is, if you have a deep-rooted connection, is that connection with people or is it with God? We have to choose because each of us has the capability to be bound to something, but is it the Spirit of God and the Kingdom of God and His promises or is it with people, money, world system relationships, and that sort of thing? What have you chosen to attach yourself with? Because if you've truly intertwined yourself with something, it's very hard to separate yourself from that thing. Now, the only thing about that, if you intertwine yourself with something where you have a deep-rooted, interwoven relationship, wherever that thing is going, if it's stronger than you, it's going to pull you in that direction. And if you try to yank yourself free, you'll find that you're either too weak to prevent yourself from being pulled along, or if you can summon up enough strength to pull yourself free, a lot of times that freedom may come with damage. As an example of that, when I was young, we would go down to the river and we would fish. And if you hooked a big fish and you were a knowledgeable fisherman, you knew that a lot of times, no matter how strong your line was, if you had a big one on the other end of that line, you wouldn't just reel him right in. Because that fish, as you were reeling him in, and he could sense that he was getting pulled further and further and was to the point where he was coming out of the water, that fish would actually get passive and would save his strength so that he could make a last-ditch effort as you try to pull him out of the water to use all his strength to break himself free. And a lot of times, he would break that line. If he broke that line, the hook would still be connected in his jaw or in his mouth. Amen? Other times, if he ripped himself free, but it was at the point of the hook, he would literally rip the flesh off to separate himself from the thing that had hooked him. So sometimes, you could detach yourself from something that you've been deeply hooked to, but it might come with pain. Now... That's from a worldly perspective. If you entangle yourself with God, there's no pain, there's no frustration, there's no breach, there's no pain and suffering whatsoever, other than what it does to your flesh, as God tells you to get away from stuff that you may want. But the reality is, when God gets his hooks on you, and God is entangled with you, he pulls you along, and it takes you to place that build up strength. Amen? Hallelujah. So he doesn't saturate your strength, he doesn't strip you of your strength, and he doesn't cause a lot of damage to your system as he pulls you along. And matter of fact, if you are entangled in something, you choose that I'm truly trying to separate myself from that, God can give you the strength where if you try to do it from a fleshly perspective, it might hurt or wound you. God will give you the strength supernaturally where he'll come in with the sword of the Spirit and the Holy Spirit, sever that tie so that you could be set free without the pain that you would suffer from a natural perspective. So going back to my initial question, who are you entangled with? Once again, are you entangled with God, which is a good thing, or have you chosen to be entangled with things of this world system? Now, the first verse I want to look at is from Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So we see here that even though it may seem to be pleasurable as you're doing ungodly things, the reality is 
doing things that are contrary to the word of God are equivalent to being entangled with a yoke of bondage. And we see here that God says, hey, when I set you free, you did that sinner's prayer, you, in your heart you believed in me, you confessed me as your Lord and Savior. From that point where you accepted me, I basically loosed you or cut you free from the bondage and the entanglements of this world system. But we see here that God actually warns us. He says, hey, stand fast in the liberty wherewith I made you free. I liberate you, but if you're not watchful, if you're not attentive, if you're not prayerful, and if you're not growing in the word of faith and starting to apply the principles that I've given you, you can end up entangled again in that same yoke of bondage that you previously were entangled by out there in the world system. So even though we may be saved and we may be guaranteed eternal life, he is warning us that we should be careful not to be entangled again with that yoke of bondage. you got to realize that either you're being pulled in the direction of God or these things are pulling you down. And a lot of times, that's why we're unable to grasp or attain the heights that God has made available to us because we're still attached to various weights and anchors from the world system that are pulling us in the opposite direction. So we have to be careful. He tells us to stand fast. Stand fast means to be stationary, to persevere. In other words, as you're going through various trials and tribulations, don't be on a spiritual roller coaster up and down one day. One day you're trusting God, the next you're doubting God. One day you're committed to God and faithful to obey his word, the next you're straddling the fence or straight out doing sin. He wants us to be stationary, immovable. It also talks about persevering. We need to have a sense of determination in our faith. Realizing that just because the enemy attacked you one time and you resisted him does not mean that you have total victory. He's going to come back again and again and again and again trying to entice you, to seduce you, and to entangle you so he can get that yoke of bondage back on you. So we need to have a sense. When it says stand fast, it's talking about being stationary, but also persevering, have some consistency and some determination in us that we're not going to allow ourselves to be placed back into bondage. Now, another thing that's interesting in this passage of Scripture, it says that we're warned not to be entangled again with. And that phrase, entangled again with, means to hold on to, to quarrel, or keep a grudge against through the idea of oscillatory or steady, uninterrupted, Repetition. In other words, we need to be careful that we're not in situations where we're always going back and forth with a bunch of nonsense, with a bunch of quarreling, with a bunch of anger, grudge holding. One minute I'm mad at this person, the next, we're cool. Then we're mad at each other again, then we're cool. We actually talked about that, I think it was yesterday or Friday, an oscillating fan. When you have an oscillating fan, it doesn't sit there stationary. You push the button on the fan or you turn it on and the fan goes in a back-and-forth movement. And at a certain amount of time, you can actually tell where the fan's going to be as it goes through its range of movement. Some people's relationships are the same way. If you're really to look at them, they are oscillatory relationships. One minute you're cool, and then the fan swings back the other way. Y'all on each other's last nerve. Then you apologize. Oh, we're cool. Then they say the wrong thing one more time, and you're back on the wrong side of the fan. So a lot of times, we're in situations like that, and he's warning us, don't be entangled again with, in other words, you were entangled before, I set you free, 
Don't let yourself get wrapped up in, tied up in, entangled up in, and weighed down by these relationships that keep you holding on to nonsense, quarreling all the time, and going back and forth, in and out of frustration and liking a person. Amen? So we have to be careful about that because with those entanglements and with that going back and forth, it starts to put those bondages back on us. And see, what happens a lot of times and why this is dangerous is if you're in that cycle of, Forgiveness, cool. Anger, forgiveness. Anger, forgiveness. After a while, it might get to the point where they do something and you start to hold on to it. And then you go back and forth, and each time you start to hold a little more and a little more until finally you have this major issue either with that person or people at work, people that remind you of them, people from years in the past. So that's why he tells us to be careful not to be entangled again because the devil is patient enough that I don't have to attack you in one skirmish and win the victory. He's patient enough that he says, okay, you resisted me, but I left a little piece of me there. Then he comes back and attacks you on another side. But I didn't get you caught up in anger, but, oh, you're agitated. Then he comes down and uses another person, and they say the wrong thing. You still didn't flip out, but now you're a little bitter. You see, each time with every attack, he might come in and leave a little more residue until finally he opens up a wound or an area in which he can get in there and he can have you captive in the yoke of bondage. So we have to be careful about that. So what we need to ask ourselves is, are the people or the situations that we're surrounded with assisting and strengthening our resolve and our ability to remain free from bondage in Jesus Christ? Or are they weighing us down with repetitive issues? Amen? What is the course of where your relationship is heading? What is the nature of the relationship itself? Is it pulling you in the direction of God? Is it strengthening you? Is it giving you peace? Is it making you feel like you're walking more towards the destiny he has for you? Or does it feel like it's weighing you down, holding you captive in that spot, or slowing you down? So you might be moving a little bit. But it might be slowing you so much that you miss your destination at the proper time and season. So we have to be careful about that. I want to look at the next scripture, Second Peter, verses 18 through 22. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh. Through much wantonness, those that were clean escape from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are entangled again and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb. The dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. So we see here, 2 Corinthians 5.17 talks about us becoming a new creature of Jesus Christ. And in the passage of scripture, he's basically taking us, we had a sin nature, we accept Jesus Christ, and he removes the, the penalty of death, 
and the curse of sin from us, cleans us up, and now we can walk in the liberty of Jesus Christ. And he tells us here, be careful that you don't let people that are saying all the right things, who have flattering lips and are saying things, and, oh, I could do this and that, and I could give you a better life. He says that all these things, if they're contrary to my will for your life, they might have an allure to them. They might promise all these great things. But if they're taking you away from me and they're enticing you and starting to control you, God is basically telling us here that if somebody overcomes you emotionally or through fear, the person that has overcome you, you're basically in bondage to that person. And God does not want you to be in bondage to anybody. It doesn't matter what they're offering you, no matter how prominent they may seem to be in your life or how much they seem that they can help you or benefit you, if that person is exercising some type of control over you, that is contrary to God's will for your life because he wants to be the sovereign ruler of your life and your destiny. Amen? He doesn't want any man to have that kind of control. And we see here that if we allow people to control us and to trap us into bondage, or if we even decide to step away from the principles of God ourselves to go out and do the things that we did uh, based upon the lust of the flesh of this world system, he says, I liberate you, I set you free, you escape from the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of me, but now you've allowed yourself to get entangled again, either of your own desires or of seduction from the enemy or people, and he says it's like a dog that is vomited and goes back and decides to eat it. I'm just keeping it real. He's basically saying you, you, you vomited and you went back and ate it. Or he says, you were a dirty animal, we washed you off and made you clean, and as soon as we made you clean, you went back and found the mud and started walling around in it. <laughs> so imagine as parents that you had children, and your children got dirty, and you took them, bathed them, got them all clean, put on clean clothes, and then your kids go right back outside and go roll around in mud or get filthy, grass stains and all that stuff, and the kind of frustration that you deal with. And unfortunately... This is what God deals with with a lot of his earthly children, that he cleans us up through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and we choose to go out and wallow in the mud. We choose, hate to be graphic, but maybe I need to be, we choose to eat something, get full to the, to the brim, vomit, and then we go out and get a spoon and a plate, and we eat our next meal. That's what you're doing when we choose to sin. God said, you vomited, you went back and ate it. And that's nasty. And maybe we need to think of it that nasty so we won't go out and do it. Amen? <laughs> so the next time you feel like going out and willfully sinning, go think, hey, I'm about to have me a nice warm bowl of vomit. Mmm, <laughs> nice big bowl. Just drive up to your local satanic diner. And when that demon comes up and says, what do you want for lunch today? I like me a nice fat bowl of sin. Matter of fact, make it two helpers, I'm hungry. I mean, if we really got to look at stuff from God, that's what he's saying here, right? Am I lying? He says a dog returning to his vomit. He ain't talking about just returning to look at it. He's talking about returning to eat it. So that's how God's looking at it. Maybe we need to take on the same perceptions, and that'll help us avoid things if we got that kind of imagery in our head. And I'm talking from me on down to everybody else in this room. Maybe if we took the time to say, let me see this according to the way you see it, God, maybe that will help us avoid the stench of some of the stuff that we're returning to and we're eating. Amen? Praise the Lord. So like I said, we have to be careful. 
that if anybody is overcoming us emotionally and or spiritually, they are becoming the masters of our life as well as our fate because we're permitting our focus, our fears, and our desires to revolve around satisfying or appeasing them as opposed to appeasing our Heavenly Father. And you have to realize that regardless of the supposed loss and the pain that you'll have from not doing what they want you to do, any relationship that's going to take away from the sovereignty of God in your life or your devotion to Him is only going to cause some kind of sorrow in your life. Amen? But if you give that thing up, if you walk away from that thing, it might hurt now, but what God is going to put in your life, amen, as a result of your faithful obedience to Him, far transcends anything that you can lose on an earthly scale. Amen? Hallelujah. So we need to focus on satisfying and appeasing God, not appeasing people or even our own fleshly desires. Now, we're going to go to Deuteronomy 11, and we're going to look at verses 16 through 18. And the Lord gave me some interesting things that you may not have heard before. Deuteronomy 11 Verses 16 through 18, and it says, Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived, and ye turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up the heaven, that there be no rain, and that the land yield not her fruit, unless ye perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. Therefore shall ye lay up these my words in your heart, And in your soul, and bind them for a sign upon your hand, that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. So we see here says, permitting yourself to be seduced or deceived into serving other gods. Amen. And worshiping other gods is contrary to God's will for your life. He tells us that his desire is that we would lay up his words in our heart and in our soul and that we would have them attached to ourselves so that they govern our perceptions or what we see. Amen? It's not only what you literally see out of your eyes, but your spiritual perceptions of these things as you, as you see them. He's talking about turning on your perceptions so that you see things according to a God's eye view as opposed to your own. And he says these things should be as frontlets before your eyes to help control what you're seeing and where you're going as you walk out on a daily basis. Amen? So permitting yourself to be deceived and detangled again, um, as we see here, though, it, it hinders you. It says, if you're not doing these things, if you allow yourself to be distracted or diverted from your course of serving God, he says, it'll cause the Lord's wrath to be kindled against you and that he will shut up the heaven, that there will be no rain and that the land yield not her fruit. We're not farmers in this day and age. So God's not going to cause a drought or prevent the crops from popping up because we choose to venture away from his righteous principles. However, he may not shut up the clouds from raining, and he may not stop the grass and the crops from growing, but he might shut up your job opportunities, different hookups that people might 
bring your way. Those are the kinds of things where God says, if you choose not to serve me faithfully and you don't take heed to my word and you serve other gods. Serving other gods is not necessarily you going and bowing down and praying to Buddha or Allah or this one or that one. Serving other gods could be knowing full well what God wants you to do, choosing to do the opposite. Amen? To satisfy your flesh. See, you may not be serving a god with a known name, Shiva or this god or that god or Dagon or one of those biblical gods. You might be serving the god of self. Yeah, you can say you love God, but you show who you love through your actions. If you're always going out and doing your thing and you're not doing what God is impelling you to do, that means at least in that area, God is not sovereign. You have elevated your own self and your own desires, your own will and your own emotions above the sovereignty of God. So you are not serving God in that area if you're choosing to disobey him and you're fully aware of what his word says. But as we see here, God says if you choose to do that, whether you're deceived or you choose to turn aside on your own, he says, I get shut up the heaven, and other things so that your life is no longer fruitful. He's not doing that because he hates you. He's not doing that because he's trying to destroy you. He's shutting these things up so you realize that the true source of your sustenance and your destiny is him. So it's actually a form of loving discipline that God shuts up your heaven and your land so that they're no longer fruitful. Now, one of the things I looked at more closely as it talked about the frontlets, that phrase, Frontlets between your eyes means foremost on your mind. What is foremost on your mind? God says if you lay up these words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand, they may be foremost on your mind. So in other words, you're walking around on a daily basis so that your perceptions are governed by his word, your desires, your agenda. Everything about you is focused on trying to walk in obedience um, to God's word to the point that deception is immediately discerned, exposed, and avoided. That is the place that God wants to get us to. Now, during the time of the Old Testament, Hebrews literally attach the word of God to themselves. So this is not just a phrase that was in the Bible where it talks about placing it on your arm and on your head. The Jews actually did this as a remembrance to themselves. And I'm going to show you a couple things. So what you see here is called tefillin. Amen? Tefillin. The box you see there on the left, tefillin. Another word that they talk about is phylacteries, amen, tefillin or phylacteries. And it was a box that they had a certain process that was highly defined in terms of how they would produce these boxes. And when I looked at this more closely yesterday, they said that even in terms of how you build the box is a very deliberate process because of the spiritual importance associated with this. For example, if you get a certain form of leather that was too thin, they said you were allowed to do it, but they frowned upon it because they wanted you to not only do it with a certain quality of leather that could stretch and could be molded and refined into this box, but also they wanted the quality to be such that they could build this whole thing using one strap of leather. So if you came in and said, I want to build to fill in with two straps, they're like, oh, we could build it, but they would frown upon it because it's not the way God truly wants it. He wanted it to be done a certain way. Amen? So they would build the straps. And on the other side of the straps, you're going about to see in a second, but they actually had the word of God embedded on these straps. And as you see here, 
they actually took these straps and they literally bound it on their arms and around their hands. The reason they would do this is that just in the book of Deuteronomy, where it talked about binding about your arm and your hand and upon your head, so it says frontless to your eyes, they literally would wrap it around there, and as they walked around on a daily basis, you know if you put something on your head, you can kind of peripheral vision or just a sense of touch, you can say something's there. So as they were walking around with this thing on their head, they could say, hey, I can feel the word of God on my head. And as they walked around, you're walking, you move your arm, guess what? Every time you move your arm, you're seeing that word of God attached. So it was a testimony to everybody surrounding you that I'm somebody that's trying to grow in God and live the word of God. And it was also a reminder to you that in all my actions, let them be governed by God's principles. Every time you feel that thing on your head, let me be reminded that my thoughts should be surrounded by the word of God. So I shouldn't be thinking anger. I shouldn't be thinking evil. I shouldn't be thinking self-motivated. My thoughts should be governed by God because I have a reminder literally attached to my head. Amen. So here we see the tefillin or tefillin, tefillin I think it's pronounced. And also we see the part that's attached to the arm as well as the hands. And a verse that we see that's related to that is Exodus chapter 13, 9. It says, and it shall be a sign unto thee upon thine hand, which we see here. And for a memorial between thine eyes, which... This is going to come, and you're going to see that later. That the Lord's law may be in thy mouth, for with a strong hand hath the Lord brought thee out of Egypt. So since God brought you out of Egypt with a strong hand, and he did it, and he wants you to be reminded of that, the same way God brought you out of Egypt with a strong hand, I want you to attach your word to my hand as a reminder of who I am and what I did in your life. Amen? Talk about a reminder. Every time you move your arm walking, every time you're reaching for something, you're reminded of God's word and God's nature and God's power that brought you out of Egypt. And you're reminded of what he's going to do again. Now, uh, during the time, like I said, of the Old Testament, they literally attached the word of God to themselves using tefillin. Actually, the word phylacteries comes from the Greek, and it has the meaning to guard or to protect. So just think, this thing is not something that's just there, but they saw this as something that's literally protecting me. I'm protected as long as I am governed by God's word. Another verse that's related to this is Exodus chapter 13, 16. And it says, and it shall be for a token upon thine hand and for frontlets between thy eyes. For by strength of hand, the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt. And here we see the straps. So on the first picture with the tefillin, you can only see the black leather and what looked like a box, which they called the tefillin. But you saw the black outer part of the tefillin, but here we see the inward part where you see literally God's word is embedded on this. So these people would literally sit there in rooms, and you had to bring them the right kind of leather, the right kind of straps that had to be stretched in such a way and molded in such a way that they could build the whole thing with one strap, and they would literally write the word of God on it. Amen? So as you're walking, not only could you walk and be reminded of the word of God, but if you pause, you could actually unravel some and read God's word. It's like, almost like a form of early Bible wrapped around your body as you walk. Because, see, some people not only put it on their hands and their arms and their head, but then they said that some people actually attach it down so it went down towards their feet. And that reminds me of Ephesians where it talks about your feet being shot with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You literally see that word attached to you as your legs were moving and you went from place to place. 
Now we're going to the next one. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8. And we see it again. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thy eyes. And another verse, I'll give it to you now. Deuteronomy eleven eighteen. Therefore shall ye lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul, and bind them for a sign upon your hand, that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. So as we see here, they actually took the tefillin, which is here, with the straps, and they wrapped it around the arms and the hand, but they also placed it here upon their heads as frontlets between their eyes. So as they were walking around, as they were meditating, and the various things they were doing for God, they had a constant reminder that God's word governs me, that my thoughts should be reflective of the God who brought me out of Egypt. So God was literally saying, attach your word upon me that I may bless you everywhere you go. And we see also here on his bicep that they have it attached as well. And man, when you think of the bicep, you think of a man's strength, his biceps. He's flexing. So it's like, my strength is not in my own biceps and my physical strength or how big and mighty my arms are. My strength is in God's word and what he's about to do in my life and what he can do for my life based upon what I know he's done in the past. Matter of fact, if you really look at where it's positioned, and I'm just, I'm just going with this, amen. I didn't even read this. But if you look at that, it actually gets in the way of a person fully flexing their arm. So how much more appropriate is it placing it there? I can't flex all the way, so I can't trust in my own strength. I have to trust in the one who I've placed upon my arm in this place to be my strength. Amen? See, you don't need to flex when you've attached God's word to you. Let God and his word flex for you. Amen? Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. All right, so like I said, the tefillin caused them to continually think about the scriptures governing their lives as they felt it on their foreheads and they saw it as they moved their arms. I already said that some people sometimes strap things down to their feet, so they were reminded of God's principles as they walked, and it was supposed to cause them to move from place to place according to the foundation of the scriptures. Now, Two of the reasons that we have also tied to this is that tefillin were placed on the arm adjacent to the heart and on the head above the brain to demonstrate that these two major organs, the brain and the heart, were dedicated to performing the service of God. My whole heart, my whole mind is dedicated to God's service. Now, in addition to this, on both sides of the head tefillin, let me show this again. You see here, it looks like a, almost like a W. That's the Hebrew letter Sheen. They would mold that onto tefillin, which was placed on the head. Then, as they tied the tefillin on your head with the strap, and they tied it into a knot that was in the shape of the Hebrew letter Dalet, which looks like an R in reverse. And then, finally, they would pull the strap around, it passed through the arm, and they tied it into a knot that was in the shape of the Hebrew letter Yod. Amen? And the funny thing is that the letter Shin, the letter Dalet, and the letter Yod actually spell Shaddai. Amen? So not only did they attach God's principles and his foundations on their body, but they were literally actually spelling Shaddai as they tied it onto their body. 
So they were literally attaching the name of God to themselves as well as saying, I'm going to be governed and reminded and I'm also will be a walking testimony of God's word as I go from place to place. They literally attached God's name upon them and wrapped themselves, or as we are seeing in our text scripture, they literally wrapped themselves in God's principles. In other words, they entangled themselves in God in action, mind, body, and spirit. Amen? So the question we have to have for ourselves is, are we doing that? When they did it, they basically cloaked and entangled themselves in the name of the Almighty God, which is what Shaddai stands for, so it would impel them to be modest. So it would cause them to be also God-fearing, void of evil thoughts, not attracted to idleness and ungodly actions, and also devoting their thoughts and their actions to truth and righteousness. And like I said, it was considered a testimony to others that this person you're seeing that is entangled with all this stuff has devoted himself to a life of continual spiritual growth, and you are encouraged, as you witness me, to do the same. So we may not have the Word of God literally strapped around us as they had during the days of the Old Testament. However, do we have that same kind of mindset, that I'm entangled in God's word, that his word is permanently foremost on my mind, that it's embedded in my heart, that as I move about with my legs and my arms, they are dedicated to the service of God. Is that the kind of mindset that we have, even though we may not have a physical instrument attached to ourselves? Amen. We can learn a lot from our Hebrew forefathers. Amen. Praise the Lord. Next one we'll look at is Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. It says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So that word yoke means a coupling or a beam of balances. And if you think of a scale, if you put something on one end of the scale that's heavier than the other, it's very easy to see that the two weights on the opposing ends of that balance beam are uneven. Because whichever end goes up in the air, you know the opposite end is the heavier side. Same thing with us spiritually. God says, I want to put a yoke on you so that your life is balanced. Is your life uneven? Is it off kilter? Then maybe if he were to measure whether you're walking more in faith and obedience or rebellion and disbelief, he might find that that side of the scale is heavier. Not heavier because of a literal weight, but maybe heavier because of the yoke of bondage or the burdens that that lifestyle place upon you. But if we allow ourselves to be balanced spiritually, then it'll be an evenly balanced scale with the yoke of Jesus Christ pulling us, directing us, guiding us, However, without weighing us down. The yoke of Jesus Christ, instead of weighing you down or placing you off kilter and unbalanced, it actually makes you totally balanced while liberating you and removing the burdens which are troubling you. So God has the greatest yoke in existence. It actually pulls you along to the right place, but yet there's no weight upon you and it's nothing but lightness and peace and comfort and joy at the yoke that he placed upon you. So he gives you a well-balanced life if you allow that yoke to pull you. Next one I'm going to look at is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or need we, as some others, 
epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you. Ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tablets of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also have made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. So we see here that contrary to the Old Testament, Jesus isn't requiring us to cover ourselves with leather straps from head to toe or leather-bound boxes on our foreheads to indicate that we are living according to his principles or that we're servants of the Most High God. Instead, we are called to not do the outward wearing of things to designate who we are. We are to, in our actions, our lifestyle, our demeanor, demonstrate that we are governed by the Spirit of God. In some cases, maybe that's a little bit harder than putting a couple straps on. But the reality is, we see here that as you're receiving the Word of God, you're not supposed to just take it in and say, okay, yeah, sounds good. But we see here that there should be a transformation process. As you're reading and hearing the Word of God, it should start to take root in your heart, your mind, and your spirit so it starts to shape who you are and control your conduct and govern your behavior and change your demeanor so that as people see you, it talks about you being a living epistle written by the Holy Spirit. Did any of you realize that you are a living letter from God? That's what the word epistle means. When Paul wrote the epistles to the other churches, he wrote letters. Amen? They didn't have any iPads and email and text messages. Paul wrote letters to churches that were miles and miles away and had to deliver these things by messenger. So he actually wrote them a letter telling them how to live according to the word of God. However, we see here that he had an expectation. When I send these letters out telling you how to conduct yourselves, I expect that the end result of you receiving these things is that you start to take them in, you absorb them, you learn them, you start to apply them, so you start to take on the character of the principles that were written within those letters. So, in other words, I've written letters, and at some point, I should see living letters walking around that are walking in the characteristics of what was written in those letters, So you read the letter, then you become the letter. And now, as you walk around, people are seeing that letter in living form, ministering to them, interacting with them in their time of need. And that's why he's saying that the true letter that he wants in the body of Christ right now is not chapter and verse in the hardbound Bible. But he wants it to be the nature of the people that are living out these principles that are exposing the Word of God even more so than reading it in a book. Amen? Unfortunately, you don't have a lot of people that are not necessarily fulfilling that. People are calling themselves Christians, and God's saying, I'm expecting you to be living epistles. How can you be a living epistle when you don't show up at church every week? How can you say you are a letter from God 
when you don't even do the simple things? How can you say you're a letter of God when you're going around and you're undermining people at work and you're causing chaos in the family, you're doing this and that? How can you say you're a living letter from God when you're not taking on the spirit of the letter? So God wants us to start to take on the characteristics of what was written in the Bible from cover to cover so that people see it more than they hear you preaching it or pulling it out of your Bible. Amen? So when we start to see that, that's probably when we'll see a revival in the United States of America, when Christians really start to exemplify the character of what we're reading and hearing on a weekly basis. And we see here that it says that if we take on the Word of God, it makes us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letters. See, it's not about the black and white. We take on the Spirit of God. Because it says here that the letter killeth. If you're worrying about the rituals, you're worrying about the black and white and rigid principles, all you're doing is going around harassing people and getting on people's last nerve, trying to beat them up in Jesus' name. But if you take on the nature of the Word of God, that's where you touch lives, you impact people, and you transform lives around in the name of Jesus. Because you're taking on the Spirit. See, the Spirit of the letter is the love of mankind that God and Jesus Christ exemplified. Amen? Hallelujah. In the next verse, we see Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. It says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So even as we are intertwined with people, it should be in a manner in which we uplift each other spiritually, emotionally, and physically. And as believers, it will breed Mutual support in pursuing God's goals for our lives. So it's good for us when we can come across fellow believers that we're on the same page. We're praying similar things. You may not necessarily have the same call, the same destiny, or the same responsibilities in God, but we should be on the same page on the majors. Amen? If we know that somebody's sick and in need, we can all visit that person, or we can at least pray for that person. If we see other kinds of need, physical needs, that if we're able to, we could do it or join together to reach out in the need. And we see here that if people combine their forces in the name of Jesus, there's so much they could do, and you can't break the cycle or the power of what they're engaging in. But if you see somebody that's going out there on their own with nobody to help them, crisis mode or a lot of trouble, they may not be able to resolve the various situations they deal with. So that's why it's so important that in the Spirit of God we join together and we're in the same mind with the same goal and the same purpose in God, praying and believing Him to be the resolution of the situations. And if you're in a situation right now where you're waiting on God for something, that's what you need. You don't need anybody that's going to be talking negative. Amen? You've been praying and praying and waiting for God to give you a breakthrough. You don't need the naysayers in your midst. Now, I was visiting my brother Anthony up in the hospital. And one of the things I told him, I said, anybody got something negative to say or, oh, woe is you and stuff like that? I said, you ain't got time for that. You cannot be listening to that right now. You don't need to talk to people who are going to pray and believe God that he's going to get you through this situation. And everybody else, love them, 
Thank you, but I can't hear you right now. And if you got to cut them off, you got to cut them off. Just like that song, it's not the time, it's not the place. You got to be in the land of faith where you're only listening to people that are on the same agenda in God and believe in Him for a miracle in your life. And like I shared with Pam, there was two other people that came in the hospital room that same day that told him the same thing. Do not allow yourself to get entangled in negativity, negative thoughts. And they might mean well, like, oh, that's a horrible. No, you ain't got time for that. And the thing is, even if you think it, why would people say it? <laughs> you might think, oh, but why can't you just let faith come out of your mouth or just keep your mouth shut? That's an area where a lot of Christians really need improvement. Even if you have a moment of shock, don't let it come out of your mouth in the ears of the person that's in need. You're speaking doubt into their system. Amen. So if we're waiting patiently on God, we need to join ourselves to people that are going to do what we see in Ecclesiastes. Somebody is going to join forces with you and help lift you up when you're about to fall down. Or if you're already down, somebody's going to lift you up, dust you off and say, in Jesus' name, I don't know how you're going to get through this, but I'm at your side. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to be praying and praying and helping you get to the other side of victory in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. I talked about binding ourselves to God. When we waiting on God according to his principles, we are binding ourselves to God. And in Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it tells us how we can bind ourselves to God spiritually. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. So we see here that as we're waiting for God, we can bind ourselves to him from a spiritual perspective. Don't be sitting there allowing yourself to get caught up in doom, unbelief, negativity, people speaking ungodly stuff into your ears. you got to be in a place where you say, I'm standing in God, and I'm going to meditate upon his word, as it says here. As much as you need it, that's what you need to do. And every time you start to feel discouraged, you need to go back to the word of God, you need to pray for yourself, or you need to find some song that uplifts you in your time of need. Don't sit there dwelling on the negative, because it doesn't say, blessed is he that gets fearful and draws his curtains shut and starts to bite his fingernails in fear. It never says that there. <laughs> it does not say that. It says, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. That comes in multiple ways. The counsel of the ungodly will entice you to sin. When Amnon wanted to sleep with his sister, he had a friend named Jonadab. That's the wrong kind of guy to go to when you're trying to sin because a Jonadab type person will say, go ahead and do it. Amen. He'll find an excuse for you. He'll justify it. He'll even motivate you to sin. So if you're about to go through something where you're going down the wrong path, don't go to somebody like a Jonadab. You need to go to somebody that's full of wisdom to say, have you lost your mind? No, you need to get your act together in Jesus' name. Amen? Hallelujah. And then on the other side of the coin, it's not always about sin when you're walking in the counsel of the ungodly. If you're in your hospital room and you've been given a death sentence by the doctor and you're starting to feel that negativity come in and then somebody comes in and they say, oh. And you're telling them and you're hoping that they're going to pray you up in faith and build you up. And they hear the negative report and they say, well, how long you got? 
Well, you ain't in the counsel of the godly right now. They might mean well, but they do not have the counsel of the godly because the counsel of the godly would say, despite the death sentence given to you by the doctor, this is what God's word says, and this is what we're going to believe, this is what we're going to profess, and this is what we're going to pray. Amen? So the counsel of the ungodly is not just to lead you to sin. Sometimes the counsel of the ungodly just will not lift you up during your time of need. And that's the last person that you need to go to when you're waiting for something from God. You need to go to somebody that's going to give you God's principles on how to wait for the answers and the resolutions to your problems. Amen? So we see here, it says, Nor standeth in the way of sinners, we are dealt with sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. The scornful, those are those people that, oh, yeah, 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 that. That Jesus stuff, man, you need to go out and do this, or you need to go there, or you need to get three jobs, or, oh, well, if you go over there, they got this special oil. You go down to the psychic down the street, she'll do a seance over you and tell you how to, no. You don't need the counsel of the scorners. The scorners are the people that don't believe in God, or they don't believe in his word truthfully, amen, or they mock God. You don't need to go to them. You need to go to somebody that's built up and strong in the word of the Lord, and that's all they're going to give you. God's word. Matter of fact, they might even hear the negative report like, ooh, that sounds real bad, but they won't allow themselves to say it. The only thing they will allow to come out of their mouth is God's counsel. Amen? Hallelujah. So in other words, even if they may believe something negative, they don't let their mouth recite what they are saying in their brain. And they'll only allow God's word to come forth regardless of what they might think over the situation. And then we see here, in terms of us waiting spiritually, it says that our delight needs to be in the law of the Lord. Amen? Your delight, the thing that brings you joy, the thing that brings you contentment and peace and comfort, the thing that enables you to lay your head down at night and go to sleep. That's what you need to be doing, and you need to find your delight in that. Because a lot of people find delight in misery, and hearing people complain and murmur and all that negativity. Well, if you want to die, go run over to those people. Amen? If you want to remain jobless, run over to those people. But if you want fruit to come out of your life, you need to get in the ears of the people that got something good to say from God's perspective, and you need to make sure that that's the only profession you allow to come out of your mouth. We see that this process is continual. You need to meditate in these things day and night, and as we see here, as you get yourself entangled in God, and you wait according to His perspective, and you delight yourself in what God's Word is going to say, despite what my flesh, emotions, and people might say, the economy, the government, whatever it may be, if you delight yourself in God, he says you'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Amen? Just think about that. A tree planted by the water. Do you realize that the closer a plant is to a water source, it doesn't just sit there like, oh, I'm happy to be here. No, that plant will root itself down deep so it can absorb as much water as it can get. Amen? And when you try to pull that tree out, you'll take half the surrounding area with you because that tree's like, uh-uh, I ain't getting out of here. This is a place of nourishment. This is a place where I'm well fed, amen? So we need to be the same way. When you attach yourself to God and you got yourself surrounded by God and his principles, don't let people uproot you, amen? Don't let them uproot you. They're talking that nonsense. Oh, I heard it. Well, I don't care what they heard. I heard the jobless rate is. Well, I don't care what the jobless rate is, amen? I don't care. What does God's word say? <laughs> See, I remember a Savior when I didn't have any money and didn't have any good job at Luke that brought me jobs spontaneously. People were chasing me down. Amen. That's the God I serve. Amen. He brings rivers of water. See, that's the thing. He brings you rivers. Well, he ain't got you planted by some desert where you're sitting there trying to get a drop. 
No, he said, I'll put a whole river by you so you can root yourself deep, get yourself well fed. And as we see here, if you get yourself attached to God and you delight yourself in God, it says here, you will bring forth your fruit in your season. Amen. So not only am I going to nurse you right now, but there's a season on the horizon. And all you got to do is stay right here, plant it by me. Don't let anybody cause you to deviate. Don't let anybody to get you off course. And most of all, don't let anybody uproot you. If you stay planted right here, despite all the things that might be going on, I'm guarantee you that you're not only going to have fruit in its season, but it says once the fruit comes forth, the leaf will not wither. I'll give you a harvest. Amen. But once the harvest comes, it ain't going to dry up. Your crops are going to be fertile. And I'll give you generations and generations. And we see here, whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. You may think that I made a mistake. I went down the wrong course. But I can tell you right now, as I went out back in 2003, computer market was horrible. They were downsizing jobs, sending jobs to India. I was looking in the paper, and I remember... Even earlier on in my computer career, I would look into papers, Philadelphia Inquirer, stuff like that, and I will see pages and pages of jobs. I'm like, oh, I can send a resume here, 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 here. Get back multiple responses, go on interviews and pick up one real quick. All of a sudden, I'm looking in the Inquirer, Sunday edition, the thickest paper of the week, two pages of computer ads, and one or maybe none of them applied to my skills. It was that bad. Amen? And then... Believing in God and praying. I'm stepping out on faith in God. I paid $200, went on a Christian business radio program, got one call. Person didn't pay me my money like I was supposed to, so she ripped me off. <laughs> Did the whole site, got $50 as a down payment, and she didn't pay me the rest. <laughs> Amen. Then a service, $4,000. Put the money out there. Turns out they ripped me off too. Amen. So I could have given up and said, oh, well, God, your word says whatever I do is going to process. It doesn't look like it's happening. It looks like my leaf is withering. But all of a sudden, God turns stuff around. And I've been working for years at home, amen, making well beyond what I invested. And my leaf is continuing to go. It's not withering. As a matter of fact, I got an interview tomorrow. Got another place that called me. Got another place that said, are you busy? So when you do it God's way and you don't allow yourself to be uprooted by what you're going through now, God will give you that fruitful season and he'll prevent your leaf from withering. Amen? Hallelujah. So whatsoever you doeth shall prosper. It may not be prospering in the moment, but I guarantee you prosperity is coming. It's coming. It's coming. Amen? Hallelujah. All right. Thank you, Jesus. You know, I'm going to close there today. Look at the time. Yeah, I'm going to stop there today. And we're going to continue on. Next week, amen, talking about waiting patiently for God. And we may not like waiting, but sometimes that's a part of the process. Sometimes it's for us to learn things in God. Sometimes it's testimonial material, amen. Sometimes it's just a means of growing closer to God. There's various reasons why God may make us wait. But it's a good thing if the fruit of it is drawing closer to God and learning to trust him more. And being able to impact people in his name. So we praise God for waiting patiently. We hope we are waiting patiently or learning to do so. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah.